Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yes, hi everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of The Gagan Pod in Conversation. Another week to keep us busy with our football fix while there's no live football on. David Weiner with you once again, joined by Michael Bridges as always, and this week, Scott McDonald. Can't wait to get into this chat. Let's rip into it. Boys, welcome. Great to have you on board this week. For all our listeners out there, the three of us are actually got the fright of looking at each other this week on on our Zoom recording. Bridgie, Scott, I've stuck myself at Stanford Bridge, so I'm feeling absolutely at home with my background at the moment. It's fantastic. Bridgie, how are you, mate? Good to see you again. Uh, a quick turnaround from your latest trivia ex- exploits on Optusport every night. How are you, you holding up? Yeah, it's been fantastic. Good to see you, Dave. And yeah, working from home has been, you know, it's been different. Something that we've become accustomed to over the last few weeks to help the cause and help the curve, you know. So um, I haven't got a, the luxury of a background like you, but I've got a few shirts on the wall there, mate. And um, yeah, it's been been good because the trivia, we've been plenty of talk about with Swartzy and John Aloisi about the shirts in the background. So it's become a little bit of a, a novelty thing that we do every night to see who's going to wear the best shirt and with the best story. Well, Scott, I reckon there's a few yarns out of the jersey you've got behind you that we'll touch on a bit later today. But thanks for joining us for the first time on The Gag and Pod. Fantastic to see you. How, how are you? Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. And yeah, I made sure that I actually just put this up because we've just moved house. So I didn't want to use Blue Tech, uh, just like in uh, the last couple of nights, Bridget's <laughs> been giving a stick to Johnny about. So I made sure I, I got one that actually hung up properly. But uh, doing okay. Um, like I mentioned there, uh, it's been kind of crazy for us as a family. Family have finally moved up from Melbourne to, to, um, to Queensland. And so I've been fully busy with that, panicking um, to see if all the uh, belongings were going to come um, and finally get into the house and um, trying to get keys and this and that and still trying to train and, and keep three kids uh, appeased as well. So it's been a busy, busy time. But I think one thing that a lot of us can take from this is the, uh, the family time that we've managed to spend with our loved ones. I think it's been uh, very good for that, uh, especially for myself where uh, the kids had spent a lot uh, longer in the UK when I first came to Australia for a good couple of months and then I moved up to, to Brisbane and, and my wife and the kids were down in Melbourne so I haven't really had to, you know, the quality time that you normally would probably spend with them so this sort of period has been excellent for that but I think it's about time we, we got back to normality <laughs> um, sooner rather than later. That's a good half glass full approach. Mine's, my three-year-old's turning to my secretary. Bridgie got to meet him this morning on the phone. It's the most sense he's heard down the other end of the line for a long, long, long time. But it's a bit like that at the moment. Um, it's, I tell you what, returning home has been a, a, a quite an adventure when it should have just been about playing football. How, how are you keeping busy at the moment in terms of football? Because, of course, the Brisbane Raw situation meant that you guys 
were one of the unfortunate clubs to be stood down. So yeah. how are you keeping fit and, and, and how are you keeping in touch? Yeah, look, you're always on your WhatsApp groups anyway, and the boys still keep in touch throughout that. Um, questions get fired in every now and again, a bit of banter here and there as well. Um, a few challenges, just like everyone else around the, the world. I think I'm going to retire from these challenges soon. It's it's getting ridiculous now. Um, but look, uh, in terms of keeping fit, uh, I, I'm one of the fortunate ones. that I've been through this before in terms of, well, I was retired. So, um, and then I came out of retirement. So, in terms of what I was doing through those periods to keep myself going, I'm pretty much doing the same thing again. Um, the only problem is, is the motivation right now when you're halfway through a season, you, you, you're so hungry to get out there again and start playing. And the way that we were performing as a, as a, as a team and as a club, um, you know, pushing up to fourth place. And, and I think we'd only lost two in the last, I think it was 13 games. So we were in fantastic form. I think we we're probably the, the most formed team in, in the league for, you know, 2020. So um, to have it come to a halt was a huge disappointment for all of us as a football club and uh, the momentum that we were building. And, um, you know, it's sort of just come to an end and you're hoping that you get the opportunity to come back again. Um, but how everyone's going to come back, um, that's going to be the interesting thing. It's going to be a strange one, Bridgie, when competition does come back. It's, it's probably less relevant than to say some of the more physical sports like rugby league or AFL, but... How do you think the adapted training and the, the lack of um, time together as a unit will affect not just the A-League, but all footballers coming back when, and I say when, not if, it happens this season? It's going to affect everybody in every sport and every business around the world, Dave. There's no doubt about that. And it's how you think outside the boxes. You know, Scotty's just mentioned there, there's WhatsApp group. You can do the Zoom, Zoom chats together. The biggest thing that you need in, a, in a, the sport, the lads will get the fitness back somewhere when you're training, yeah? And you can, you can mm-hmm. without being the rugby league and being together and packed in tight, you can train and you can kind of do your distancing to a degree in our, in our sports if you're going to be doing that kind of work. Um, but what you do, what you will lose is the camaraderie and the banter and the togetherness because when I retired, Scotty talked about as well, there's nothing worse than being regimented for 20 years of your life. Knowing what you, when you're getting up, knowing what you're going to do, you're going to meet a lad. And I used to look forward to that half an hour of banter before training, before we got our heads on and did the rehab. So the, you know, the, the coaches that will be on top of things, they'll be having interaction with the players, they'll be doing Zoom meetings, they'll be doing training sessions. And if not, they'll just let the lads get together with their WhatsApp groups and have some banter and get, get together because that is refreshing for the mind. And when you lose that, you lose your drive, you lose your mentality. And, uh, you know, what worries me, Dave, about this period in time with everybody across the board is obesity levels. It's mental health problems after the back of this because you're isolated. People, you've got to find ways to stimulate yourself. And I'm Mm. seeing the coaches that are on top of that will come out the best prepared at the end of this for them and their players to get back to normality as quick as possible. I also think as well, style of play and... uh, the way, um, especially for us, I take us as, as the prime example of terms of uh, tactically, um, and and with you know Robbie as the coach, and I think everyone was had the buy-in fact and everything was starting to work. The the philosophy that he was trying to grow, um, so for that momentum to be stopped now, and you're almost having to restart again, um, and and that's no disrespect to the to the league itself, but at the level that you're at, you can't just pick up where you left off. You know, it takes time to to build that again and to get the understandings and as much as you bang your head against the wall, a lot of players will go away for this period, whether it be eight weeks, 12 weeks and forget 
a lot of the, the simplistic stuff that you were ingraining them into them for the you know the period before that. And it's almost like you're having to you know rub the board and, and start again. And, and that's probably the most frustrating bit probably for a manager as well, um, that you are building something and, and all of a sudden um, you're having to start it from scratch again. Don't get me wrong, there'll be the other ones on the other side that are going, this is great, freshen up the boys, get them away and we come back again. Yeah. I was going to say, Scott, it's also a good time for coaches and their players to have a little bit of self-reflection. So you've just said there, you know, you were on a good good run of, of form. Is where the momentum was building. It's hard to, to get back to that. But, you know, a lot of players, a lot of coaches will say, you know, it's a time for you players to educate yourselves. If you want to go into yeah. coaching role, have a look at yeah. some of the games, analyse your own performances, show a little bit of tactics. And that's what I was saying. I've seen a lot of the clubs that have been doing it in, in the UK at the moment have been sending their players um, whether they like it or not, you know, they've been sending bits of huddle footage, go and analyse the game, come back to us with what you think we were doing here, just to try and keep them also mentally involved and engaged, but to learn a bit more apart from just you being a player. Yeah, uh, that's the beauty of it, isn't it? Sorry, David, in terms of now with the technology we have, is it's, it's all at the touch of a button for you. You know, as, a, as an individual and as a player, it's, it's totally, now there's no excuses. You know, it's totally up to the individual to, to go and push themselves to the limits, whether it be intellectually or physically, um, to, to get better as a player. At the back end of your career, have you learnt anything new off a striking legend in Robbie Fowler? What kind of coach has, has he been up at the Raw? Yeah, you know, I, I think for me now, it's in terms of looking at coaches and managers, um, in terms of how they uh, present themselves, how they speak to their, their players, how they look after their players. Um, and yeah, there's, there's little tiny, you know, bits of detail within the game that um, something you may not have looked at before um, till now and go, actually, do you know what? That's, that's important. You know, I think that those types of things that you pick up is, you know, you're not going to reinvent the wheel. You know, you've been playing the game 20 years, but there's always something uh, of a smaller detail that you can pick up from coaches and they can be the differences. I say that to players all the time. It's not the, the big things. It's the smaller details of what the top, top professionals do. That's what gives them the edge over, you know, the other individuals. It's uh, the lengths that they'll go to to get those little, you know, bits of details within their game that, that make all the difference. Yeah, I've got one for you, mate. Um, obviously, being a senior player at the Brisbane Raw, and you've got a, a staff that not so long ago have been players themselves, so they understand... I've been yes. in a situation in the past, I, I look at it now from a coaching header rather than a, a player, but I look back to think of managers that have done certain things. And I remember coming a few players coming to the back end of their careers at Leeds United, I, David Batty, Nigel Martin, and we got a fitness coach came in from New Zealand. And just basically, them players have been 34, 35. They played for international football. They knew how, what to do off the park. And we got a guy come in saying, you're going to take these tablets, you're going to do this, you've got to do that. And he kind of dictated his way, and it was just an absolute recipe for disaster. Yeah. Um, I, oh, it was funny talking to a few of these lads over here, talking about Clarkie, who was at Central Coast Mariners, how he looked after the senior boys, and also at Sydney FC, how there's a lot more of a, a go-between, he understands what they need to do. Has Robbie and Granty been like that with you? Because they, they know you're freckling, and you understand your own body? They give you a bit more Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thing the manager said to me was... Uh, you know, I wish someone had done it for me, you know, at your age, when I was your age, in terms of looking after um, my body better. So anytime you need a break or you need looked after or need something different, let us know. Um, or I'll be pulling you at times. And I was like, well, 
you can't do that because I won't be allowing you to do that. <laughs> I think as you get older, you don't want to stop. I think you're worried if you stop, but that's the end, isn't it? You know, so um, I'm all systems go, but they've been fantastic. And I think um, the best managers that I've always worked with are the ones that were always very, very comfortable within their own skin. Um, and in terms of the personalities around them didn't affect who they were as individuals. Um, and they could deal with all different types of characters. And Robbie certainly uh, struck me as one of those people that can, uh, can deal with all types. And um, as soon as I came through the door, uh, himself and Tony were, were very, very good to me. I mentioned to you off air there about, you know, allowing me to, to do some coaching um, within the team and uh, whether it be with the first team or, or the reserves and uh, come and speak to us and, and let's talk through the sessions. And this is a great way to to learn this is the only way you're going to learn by getting on the grass and making mistakes here and now so for me straight away I was like wow I mean that's a, a huge buy-in already you know day one um, saying all these things to me and, and that's what a senior player thrives on they thrive on someone looking after them making them feel important uh, and buying into them and straight away you know yourself you give them 100 you'll go through brick walls you'll buy into anything they want you to do um, and that was that was a major difference for me as soon as I walked through the door of Bristol Roar. And I think that's why my performances and, and the way I've uh, you know gone about things there has been such an enjoyment so far. Well, that was the reason I asked the question because I reckon just towards the end of my career with the Jets, we had Gary Van Egmond come in as the manager. And the, the, the trust and loyalty and respect between the senior players like yourselves, Zenon Caravella, Casey mm -hmm. Wehrman, Matt Thompson, it just, you know, there was none of that really. It had just been blown apart because he didn't understand when some of us say, listen, we need a bit of a rest because we had a lot of young players. Josh Brilliante, uh, you know, Jacob Pepper and Scott yeah. Neville, they run, all, they run all day long. They're like greyhounds. Yeah. And he was expecting us to compete with that. And when you try to do that honesty thing, it just was, you know, it was seen as a, a massive negative and it was like, you can't do it, you're not good enough. And I, I found that really, really disappointing for that group of players that yeah. was obliterated. Uh, and that's what it came down to. So that's why I asked the question there to see if Robbie was on the same page. Yeah, well, I think you know as well, like in terms of that's, we'll let you talk in a minute, David. Sorry, mate. <laughs> oh, hey, if I don't say a word for the next 40 minutes, it's just out of my working day. <laughs> but I think, I think as well, um, I've lost what I was going to train a thought there. Um, in terms of managing groups now, it's so important that you can't manage a group all the same. You have to individualize, you know, certain individuals need a lot more care or, or a lot more speaking to the, than others will. And I think the understanding within the group has to be that they understand that that's the case as well, that not everyone is equal here. Uh, we are when we're out there, but in terms of the way you're going to be dealt with and spoken to, some are going to need a little bit more than others. And some are going to need a little bit more rest than others because they are of a senior age. Um, and as long as the understanding and the respect there within the group, that's the most important thing, the harmonious uh, within the group, because you can have a little bit of the bitching and the moaning if someone's getting sort of favoritism over the other one. So the understanding has to be there within the group to make sure it, it remains as harmonious as possible. Has it, the, it was obviously a fair bit of um, concern a couple of weeks ago, Scott, when clubs did start to stand down players and here we are now in that time frame. What kind of, um, Sledgehammer was that for the playing group and, and peers that you've spoken to because, um, you know, Bridgie mentioned the mental health side of it. it it's a real concern. The PFA are concerned about it. Um, yeah. How did that go down? And as a player, a second part of this question is, is are there fears that, that, that you know, that the season might be done? Um, look, I think we're, 
very fortunate in terms of where we're at as a football nation and where we, we are at in the season that we've only got, what, six games to go. And let's be real, we normally have six months between mm. uh, end of season, start of season. So, albeit the arguments will be where you're going to play the games and stuff, but I think the possibility is still going to, in our belief anyways, players, that you're always going to have that time mm. to be able to, to make it up and go and finish the season. Um, and as a matter of, you know, in terms of being stood down, yeah, look, everyone's sad and disappointed by it. And what I've tried to do along with some of the other senior players who have been excellent is trying to, you know, reach out and, and be there for some of the younger ones or some of the ones that, 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 you know, are looking for a bit more guidance or a bit more advice that maybe don't understand either in terms of, you know, the, the legalities of trying to, whether it be trying to get on Centrelink or, the job seek all these you know crazy things but there's things that you know young professionals have never had to go and do so um we've been trying to help each other out as much as possible um and the the real difficulty has been for obviously the the foreign boards you know probably for every every playing group that um they aren't going to be allowed to have the job keepers uh, allowance as well so um you know, we've been speaking about that within the group and, and trying to help them as best we can uh, moving forward. But look, it's a situation we're all in, David, in terms of, you know, within football. And it's sad, but the, the clubs feel that, that they don't have um, any other option, um, which, I mean, is disappointing to the players, um, but also disappointing for the clubs. So everyone's in a, in a serious situation right now. Um, and it's just a case of wait and see where it's going to go. Um, and, and we well know that the, the talks are going on between the FFA and uh, Fox Sports. And I think really when we know more about what's going on at that end, uh, we'll be able to determine a lot more when or if the season starts again and uh, what's going to happen the following season. Scott, can I ask the foreign players you just mentioned that aren't eligible for the, the benefits in the government, have they hung around like um, Tommy Aldridge and them? Or have they gone back to be with their families in their, their countries? Look, the option was there, and this is where the club was great um, in terms of as soon as um, things went the way they were and the, the league was suspended, was, look, we're here for each and every one of yous. you. Know, David Poré was excellent in terms of you know, his support to the group. Um, and wanted to, you know, reach out to the foreign boys and said to them, look, if you want to go home back to your families, you know, by all means go. You know, this is a, a serious time and everyone wants to be around their families. But everyone has stuck around um, and, uh, and stayed within the area um, because I think at that point as well, it was getting very difficult to go back to the UK, as you mm -hmm. probably know, Bridget. Um, the prices and, and were just getting ridiculous. I was... I heard something like between 5,000 and 10,000 pounds boys were trying to pay just to get on a flight for economy. It's, it's crazy money, you know, and then to be in lockdown anyway. Um, and you don't know where you've been um, up until you get to your family. I think that was a huge concern for, for all the boys who were here. So they felt it was best for, for everyone if they just stayed put. Um, and I'll be honest with you, in terms of uh, being in, in isolation, uh, I don't think uh, Brisbane or the Gold Coast is a, is a bad place to, to, be, to be isolated in. You know, it's, it's 28 degrees today. Okay, you can't really go out too much, but you can get out in the back garden. And like you said, you can get on your computer or you can read a good book and uh, enjoy the sunshine. So um, it's not all too bad. So it wouldn't have been exactly, none of us would have expected this rolling into uh, 2020. But when you, now that you have a bit of a second to, to think about what um, 
you have walked back into coming home. Um, how has it been coming home? And particularly <laughs> a bit of football, um, the A League. I mean, what a what a great position you are to to, to judge where we're at or where we need to be. I suppose uh, having scaled the heights that you have. I think I'm just lucky to be alive because I said to the missus at the start of the season, right, this is the last time we're going to move. So <laughs> I'm, I'm just fortunate to be here. And you did it again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm never going to say that again. I didn't say it this time. Um, how many moves have you had in total? <laughs> oh, um, probably oh, seven or eight, I would imagine. So, I mean, it's getting to the point now as well where, you know, you sell bridge. When you've got a young family, it's... Um, we were speaking about it this morning and how well the kids have adapted. Okay, they're young, but in terms of, you know, missing out and, and being part of their friends, it does break your heart in terms of how much, you know, you move them around. You do feel a little bit selfish at times for, for doing that to them. So um, I'm hoping that this is going to be the last time, mate. Um, and like I said earlier there, in terms of a place to live, I don't think I could have found a, a much better place than, than being up here. So we're really enjoying it and loving it. Um, but in terms of being back, I've really enjoyed it, David. Um, it's been it's been great for me. I mean, I played a lot of my time in in Scottish football and, and felt I'd done enough within it, and I got a bit bored of it, and that's why I retired in the first instance. So um, I was desperate to come back on a couple of occasions to Australia, and for one reason or another, it never happened. Um, I got blocked once or twice from clubs and uh, back in the UK, and and then once or twice it wasn't the right the right time or deal for me to come back. Um, but I was thankful finally at, at the the the, uh, the young age of 36, I was able to come home and uh, get the opportunity to play for a club that was just starting over, um, which was a huge honour and um, one that I was hugely excited by and, and being back in my hometown as well. So to have done that, um, I'm extremely proud and um, delighted to have come back to, you know, for the family to, to see me play at the end of my career as well. I always wanted to, to do that in my later stages anyway. You had to ask me when I was probably about 30, 31, if I was ever going to come back to Australia, I would have been like, hell no. You know, I'm, I'm British now, more or less. I've lived here for, you know, half my life. You know, all my adult life's been here. All my friends are here. My wife's English. So I didn't really see it happening. But once the kids get a, a little bit older and you start, you know, coming home for holidays and realising the, the opportunity in life for, for them as, as young kids as well, that, that really turned my head a lot. But also to play in a different competition with the different types of styles um, was interesting for me. And to show people as well, because I don't think a lot of people would really sort of seen me for a long time. Um, they, they know that I played for the national team and, you know, we can talk about that, um, you know, in terms of, you know, not being able to score a goal for, for the national team was always something that was well documented. So it was nice for me to come home and actually show people, well, hopefully I have, in terms of the, the qualities that I still possess and, and that I had throughout my career. So well, um, we're still waiting. Good. Hey, no, it's never too late. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but it's been good because, look, a lot of senior players that have come back, as you'll know, you're very much scrutinised um, in terms of because you've had a career and are you here for the paycheck or are you here for a holiday? Um, certainly not the case for me. I've been here to play. Uh, we're here to win um, and it's been uh, it's been enjoyable it's been testing and um, the first six months at, at Western United um, I enjoyed it albeit it didn't always go the, the way I would have liked but um, I found a great opportunity up at Brisbane with, with Robbie who once he gave me a call I was really looking forward to, to working with you know someone of you know Robbie Fowler's stature um, and like we touched upon earlier you know 
felt that I could uh, really learn uh, a lot from him um, with his experiences within the game. And himself and, and Tony have been excellent for me. They really have. And um, I've enjoyed it thoroughly. And uh, I'm just looking forward to getting back out there soon, guys, um, and, and work with him again. And um, I really felt like we were building something special up until now and um, pushing for the, you know, the finals berth. And I thought, and I still think we're, we're a real threat to, to any team in this league. Um, and we've got a real chance of winning it. So hopefully we can come back and uh, you know, get the head screwed on straight away, work hard and um, be a test for everyone and uh, push on and, and maybe go all the way. Um, but in terms of the league itself, David, as well, you know, I found it, obviously it's very physically demanding. Um, as we always know, Australians are, are very fit athletes. Um, technically, it's been uh, more surprising than probably what I expected. There's some very good players here. Um, I just think in terms of the, the the way that the game, the pace of the game, the way it's played here, it's dictated a lot to the weather. You know, I, I think um, it's very difficult at times to sort of put where our players are compared to overseas at times because of the tempo of the game here. You know, and, uh, you know, we, we like to play a possession style based game. Um, and I felt as soon as I come it was a lot more tactical than what I'd been probably previously used to in terms of shapes were, were very much a big thing here um, in terms of, you know, ways of playing, uh, play out from the back. And it was like almost ingrained to you robotically. You had to play certain ways, you know, and I found, I found it almost like it's been like a game of chess at times um, playing within the games, you know, you know, all teams, you know, trying to nullify each other. You know, whereas, you know, in, in Britain anyway, at times, it's, it's let's go out there and, and, and get at them. It's, it's not really been like that um, at times. And I, and I kind of think as well, at, at times, that's why we we found a lot of games quite dreary um, in terms of the way the styles are playing, the heat um, being a big factor because of the tempos of the games. And um, a lot of people have asked in terms of could we survive by playing in winter I'd be for that in terms of because of what it would give um, to the game itself, regardless of whether or not we, I mean, the biggest question would be facilities. But in terms of your crowds, I think your your solid crowds are already there. You know, whether or not you're going to grow on that, I don't know. But in terms of the uh, the actual styles of play and, and the, the games you, you would actually get, I think they would be of a higher standard if we, we played in conditions that were more suitable to play in the game. But you, when you came over, it was quite gung-ho. I think uh, the innocence was something that endeared in the A-League in, in the early years, but it has become a bit of everyone trying to copycat and cancel each other out since then. Do you think that um, that's kind of created what, what Scott said about some games being a bit drab or a game of chess has created that perception that unfortunately we do talk about that maybe gives the league a bit of a, whether it's a bad rap or, or not the kudos that it might otherwise get for what Scott mentioned, which is that there's a bit of tactical, you know, depth to it and whatnot, but it just doesn't have that sense of freedom it used to. The the heat factor is a, is a huge issue, which I believe, you know, some of the games, I remember playing Wellington Phoenix at the Jets Stadium, and it was before the, you know, just that machine, I can't think what the machine's called, if it's over a certain amount. Oh, the wet bulb or something? The wet bulb, whatever it is, yeah. And it was like 41 degrees, and if it got to 42, then it, and you know, you're praying that it did. And somehow it manufactures itself just to miss out so you were able to play the game. 
and it was like playing in rewind or in slow slow play. You know, there was two drinks breaks, and it does become stop start. The the other is the other side of it. I think the coach and I got here under Branco Cleaner. Don't get us wrong, fantastic guy, fantastic coach. But technically, you 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 know, I look at where the game is now, and I, I'm. I think the coaches with the curriculum have gone on to a whole new level with the analysis side of it. And like you say, shapes and tactics and rotations. Um, having just been back in the UK a few months ago, before the, obviously the COVID and everything, and going into some of the academies, it's still like Scotty says, there is there is a bit of um, awareness on tactics and on shape. But again, it's kind of, you, you go out there and you give it all in the first 20 minutes, we stretch them. It's a lot more tactically demanding here. But again, it's coaches that are... You, you, the curriculum of, of giving younger coaches and, and ideas at all levels to play 4-3-3. You've got to come mm. up with your own ideas and your own inventions to change the mould of the game, otherwise it becomes boring. And that's what coaches are starting to do now, and that's what Scott's on about. You know, we've got a lot of teams playing three at the back with the wing-backs pushing on, drops in as a back five. So the game, tactically, in this country, I believe, with the coaches that have, have gone through the curriculum, and Ange set the standard, no doubt about it, um, but it, it does affect the game. I do think if it was the winter time, we'd see a lot more, a lot more players being able to get up and down and do the tactics to a higher standard because of the the temperatures. So um, I, I believe the coaching aspect's gone up, Dave. But sometimes it can lead to, like you say, the games that have been a little bit dour. But there's a lot of factors to go into that. Uh, I also think games. Mm. So I also think as well in terms of the, the league itself allows a lot of coaches to build on a philosophy that can be a failure, you know, and, and that's something that really I scratch my head at. Um, you can be bottom of the league, but still continue to play the same way week in, week out, week in, week out, and not have to change and then not have the, uh, you know, the, the pressures of actually being bottom of the league and actually having to, you know, we just need to win by hook or by crook. Mm. You know, and I think at times that that's the wrong mentality to have as well, that it's all about the philosophy. You know, in terms of you know, you've got to be competitive, you've got to go and win games as well, and you've got to give yourself the best opportunity to do that. And a lot of the time that goes amiss in terms of, oh, it's all about my philosophy rather than actually going to win the game, which I don't agree with because I've never been built on that way. Well, it was, it was interesting. You know, I had a chat with Heskey when he was here and we took him to one of the local clubs to, to have a chat. And one of the kids asked, oh, are you feeling the pressure being the marquee player? And Heskey, he very, you know, Emil's un unanimated and he, he just started laughing and he went, pressure. He said, pressure. He said, we don't get relegated here. He said, there's no accountability. There's no pressure. He said, pressure is playing at Anfield in front of 50-odd thousand or 30-odd thousand and getting told that you are crap. That's crap. <laughs> Fighting with Leicester, that's pressure. So he hit the nail on the head there, you know. It was it was very interesting to hear him saying, as coming as a marquee, that there's, there's no pressure here. It's, you know, you come here to enjoy it and just play the game because there's no relegation, there's no accountability. And the other thing I don't agree with in the A-League, um, Dave, and I don't know how Scott feels about this, obviously just coming back, it, it is, as we call it, a salary cap league. Yeah. Now, if I'm, if I'm the coach and I'm going for a job interview and I'm going to Central Coast Mariners or I'm going to the Sydney or the Melbourne Victory or Perth Glory. There's only one job, that I, or through the three jobs. I am not going to be interested in the Central Coast Mariners because you know you're on a hiding and nothing originally in the first place because you cannot compete with the market 
being able to get the players that you want under the salary cap basis that they are using because the salary cap is not there, mate. It's it's it, there is a cap, but you know I'd love to see how many people have gone over the top of it and what clubs actually spend because I reckon you could name the league by what teams have spent all the way down from top to bottom and it wouldn't be too missed missed up. Yeah, well the worries. In, in, in terms of that as well, then, uh, do you not find that you named a, a club there? I won't go as far as that, but uh, and do you not find that some of the clubs have become complacent because of these salary caps as well? Yes. And they just use the minimal of what they are instead of building a philosophy for their football club to become competitive. Now, this is a difference with having a salary cap and not. And I think a lot of the league itself has become complacent and lazy with the salary cap being in place. Now, it's been good for the players because it's guaranteed certain amount of monies and and wages for the players itself. But in terms of, you know, a lot of people, the advocates to, to get rid of it. And I, I'm, I'd be comfortable enough to, to get rid of it as well um, because it would then have to allow clubs to, to come up with philosophies and ideas and ways to go and push forward and be competitive out with your Sydney's, your, your Melbourne victories, who are always going to be, you know, top heavy, cash heavy. They're, they're always going to be able to buy and, and, and have the best players because they can spend the most. But you as the smaller clubs like you see in the rest of the world, you know, they have to build philosophies right from the bottom and work their way up and yeah. try and be competitive. You know, and, and that's what we're lacking in terms of Australian football right now. And people talk about giving youth a bit, you know, more of an opportunity and, and building um, from structures like that. We, we haven't done that. In terms of players seeing pathways as well, I think it's very few and far between. I think... I've been at Brisbane Raw now four months and I do see pathways coming because their academy is built all the way through from 12 all the way upwards. You're not so sure every A-League club has got that still to this day. Um, and that's a problem because a young boy from South East Melbourne, where I'm from, I don't know right now if I'm sitting there, where am I meant to be going to actually achieve my goals of being a professional footballer? Because there's no professional team out there there's no Melbourne victories or Melbourne City. They'll argue with me or West United. I'm going to go out there and, and look at players at the, that area. So they see the MPL as the, the big deal. And that's why we're having to pay the money that the kids are to go and play at competition levels like that as well, which is ridiculous because when we were growing up, it wasn't that case. I don't see regionals. I don't see there's Victorian or there's state teams, but there was always a pathway for us, David, in terms of, how we got to where we got to. And I think Mark Viduka touched on it in terms of the AIS being gone away now, all the institutes of sports, the government funded things. I think the FFA were given the opportunity to, to continue that and threw it away um, because the Olympic team funded it. Once the Olympic team stopped qualifying, the government funding went away. So the FFA felt they didn't want to pay the money, which for me, it was a wrong decision and gave out all the wrong signs because the youth development was not set up in the A-League yet yeah. for that to be thrown away. Well, you're one of the ones, Scott, who's had a, the, almost represents what a great pathway can look like. Because you played for all those fantastic youth teams before going into the, you know, to the domain national team and going abroad. Can you compare the experience you had now with, or provide that context for what you just sort of identified before that there are, if you were now doing that journey now, you would struggle to see that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's my point, you know, being that I knew, I could tell you, you know, writing down on a piece of paper, which I did when I was younger, the, the steps to get to where I needed to get to, you know, and 
I'm not so sure that those steps are there in place anymore for young players to actually come through and, and get to where they want to get to or where they need to get to. Um, I think a lot of it's missed out before they get to the A-League, you know, in terms of their coaching and, um, and being prepared to be a, a full-time professional football player. And I think that's where the likes of the Institutes of Sports all around the States before you even got to the AIS. Mm. And you, before you even got to that, then you were representing the States and you were going training with them twice a week. Um, it, it, was a lot of, it was a lot of push and pressure on the, on the young you know, parents as well, but they're still doing it to this day, training you know, three, four, five times at MPL level. But what they're not getting is probably the opportunity to go and play against the very best in their States, you know, or going training with them you know, day in, day out to go and test themselves further um, and come up with answers. You know, we're not doing that. We're not giving um, the elite players the opportunities to go and test themselves against other elite players to go and find answers for themselves. They're getting all their own way till they get to a certain age, and um, they're not. They've not been coached from a professional level or from a full time level to then step up to, to going into almost you know a reserve team at A League level to go right there. You go on. You go. You're a full time professional now. And um, they've not done all the basis to, you know, to get to that point. And that's the difficult part. It's, and it's not a click of the fingers to get it back to what it used to be. No. Yeah, I, I want to ask, with that sort of segue, I, I've, you know, you obviously went off to England early doors and you went pretty confident in your ability. And, and I've read some of the exchanges that you had as you sort of left Southampton and, and you know, reflect on that in, in hindsight about the advice that, that Gordon Strachan gave you. But at the time, you went to England feeling like you were ready based off your experiences yeah. here. And was that because of the physicality of it? Was that because of your playing with men? Were Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honouring highly requested new colours for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You rocked up in England. Did you feel like, I've got this? Absolutely. I think... Like you said there, I was fortunate. I was, I've never been the biggest guy, but I've always been able to carry myself in terms of from a physical point to be able to play against men when I was younger. I was fortunate. Um, and that held me in good stead. And I think when you're going back to playing your own age groups, you're always confident that you could be the best there. Uh, I always thought that in terms of my levels. I think what helped me is, well, I played for my local club uh, at Dufton as a junior and we were able to raise funds to go overseas when I was 13, 14 to go and play in two international tournaments in the UK. And that was a real eye-opener for me, myself and all the players of the levels you were going to have to get to to be able to compete against these top, top young players. Um, it, was, it was such an experience. So I came back from that um, a far better player um, and someone that was willing to, to work even harder because I knew that I had something, but I needed to work even harder to, to be able to even have half a chance of getting across to, to where I needed to get to. And look, the NSL was fantastic at that time, um, but I think it never had the money, you know, in terms of the finances to keep the young players um, 
or the glamour of what the A-League has had in the last you know, 15 years. And I think in terms of some of the younger players would take the comfortability of taking their 60 to 100 grand rather yeah. than actually go and throw themselves right bank all the way overseas like we did as younger players. So there was quite a few of us um, who chose that pathway or the other pathway was to go through the Australian Institute of Sport, maybe play one, two years in the NSL and then, and then go on. Um, we just haven't we haven't got that anymore. What the what was you know I think Mark Vaduka touched on it was whether you were at the AIS or if you were like myself or Harry Q where you went over and did your YTS in the UK. You you were getting taught as a professional footballer from then on in. You know I, I just don't see the same pathways right now until you know we're talking about the A League um, having the league next year. But we've got to look at the youth development side and maybe we have to you know, put a lot more money into uh, the youth development side to, to get it up to the standards. And we know you can go across to Europe and have a look at um, the, the youth setups that they've got. Now, I'm not saying we can replicate that, but there's certainly a lot we can take from that and, and try and push forward and bringing in uh, these players at a little bit of a younger age to become full-time professionals with good coaching and, you know, a lot of the, the youth teams in Europe have the types of things where they have, uh, you know, the players, they come in, they train um, in the afternoons, but they go to school and they all go to school in the mornings together. Now, that, that's something I'm a big advocate of. We could try and organise to get something like that in academy setups over here. A little bit harder, Scotty, nowadays than it was when the likes of yourself and Harry Keel, obviously with that age restriction that came into play. Yeah. It's 18. If you go before that, obviously you've got to go with your family or they've got to be put with a family member that's yeah. over there. There was a young lad from, I think, Sydney in Australia, just gone to Roma uh, yes. recently. And I was thinking, how's, how's that happened? He's under 18, but obviously family are there and things. So it's, it, it's, a whole, it's not just a decision for your kid nowadays. It's a decision the family have got to make. Are we willing to sacrifice our life here to go to another country? And I think, is it, is it Mark? Is it Mark? The Aussie who's got his boy at Man City? Mm, yes. Robertson. Yeah. Yeah. Mark Robertson. Yeah. No, he's right. made that sacrifice to go there and do that. So it's it's not as easy um, as, it used to, as it used to be. It's even, but, better, it's even better for us as Australians, then, isn't it, then? Because it's much more difficult for the players to, to go overseas at that age. Then if, if we can get it right over here uh, in terms of the development side, then it, it can only benefit the, the game going forward because they're not at threat of losing these boys at the age of 16 like they once were. You've got that time to go and develop them and, and bring them through and make money on them, you know, if you do it right. Well, that's a key thing too as well, is getting better bang for our buck out of developing players and transferring them. Um, now, normally in these Gagapod in conversations, we, we, we are a bit more nostalgic, but we're having a really interesting, constructive chat about your experiences here, Scott. And, and before we do just throw a few, uh, a few um, stories from memory lane, I just want to ask the both of you, it's probably an impossible question because money makes the world go round and this climate... You're going to, you're going to ask it anyway, aren't you? Yeah, this, of course I am, because this climate is, uh, is not one to be asking these kind of questions. But, you know, you talk about youth development and it's the, it's, the, it's the question in Australian football. But from your observations, if you can add a constructive but a practical, something that if you can make one change, one bit of advice, one thing that you think is so obvious that we're not doing as someone who's coming from outside in Bridgie and observed for a decade, as someone who lived it themselves, Scott, and now is making these observations, just something that is practically 
fixable right now? Um, to you, Scott, first, what, what, what would you do? For me, like I, I touched on it there, I, I really, really feel that 18 or, or 17 is too, too old an age to be bringing them in as, as full-time professionals. We need to be looking at bringing them in and educating them from a, a very much you know, younger age. That has to be you know, 15, 16 full-time um, for me. Uh, not just the special ones that, that you think, well, they've got a real, they've showed extra special talent, so we'll bring them in quicker. No, because play, all players develop at you know different stages, and some of them probably need that extra professional coaching at a younger age, you know, and and having development all the way through and with good coaching. So for me, it would be to bring players in at a younger age, um, at a full time basis, if you want to get better. Then and get your players better, and that's what you have to do. And and for myself, mate, my mind's not just about the players. For it's for the the country or the football in this country in general. It's to I would love to see the registration fees for junior football in academies be mm -hmm. less than they are. Um, I you know if I I couldn't have played football at a uh, in my region if I had no. to pay for it back in Newcastle because my parents couldn't you know couldn't afford to, to give us that opportunity that's why I played football because it was in the park it was a ball and it was school and everything was was free it was the you know the the, the what do we call it? that's why Brazilian Argentinians and Uruguayans and South American kids you know that's all they do it's football in the parks in the streets I would love to see that happen and have lesser lesser fees because I still think there's a lot of kids going around the football or soccer market that we're missing out on because they can't afford the fees, yeah. um, which is terrible. And I know that personally from a family that had three kids going to an academy and they could only afford to pay for two of them. And that, you know, having a parent having to make that decision, which one of my kids misses out, it doesn't sit well. Um, and the other one is the, all the federations and all the members, they've all got their own ideas and their own agendas and their own things. If it's for the good of the game, get on the same page and go on the right pathway and see mm -hmm. if we all come together and just do something because there's too many, too many of the federations are not on the same wavelength. It's all, it's it's about a quick quick hit and a quick gain rather than the long term success of football. Now, Scott, I can't look at that Celtic jersey behind you and have you here on this show and and not uh, go down <laughs> memory lane for a few minutes talking about because Bridgie mentioned before the pressure of fifty sixty thousand that Emil spoke about and. Um, you mentioned coming home because you wanted to prove a little bit because maybe you had been, people hadn't seen you where you were in Scotland. Um, have you had the chance to reflect or look back at some of your achievements, channel those 50,000, 60,000 fans? Can you take us back to those halcyon days and those, those big moments there and what it was like playing for that massive club? I don't think that they ever leave you, David. I think... Um you will touch on say the same thing those special times and, and moments within your career um, the European nights were just the, the best ever you know I think hands down you know on a European night Celtic Park's the best place to be you know the place just rocks um, and, and they were it was you know when you go out there and you hear the Champions League theme it's almost like you're the incredible Hulk for that 60 seconds and then you go to take kickoff and the fans start singing a cappella, you'll never walk alone. For that first 60 seconds of the game, your head's somewhere else. You're just running around like a madman. But it, there, there was so many special moments in the time I was there. You know, almost, I think it was, it was only a, a three-year period, but it felt like a long, long time and you become a, a real family 
um, between that time and you still go back and there's still a lot of the same faces that work at the football club. And I think that's always the, the special thing about British football when you go back to these old clubs. I keep saying Bridgie because Bridgie will know as well. When you I go just back think and... Bridgie's old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are, mate. But in terms of in terms of going back and you see uh, old faces and you know they they remembered you and you chat away. It's it's a special thing because they've been a part of that football club before you were even there, and they're still there now. And um, it, it's just special moments. And uh, I love going back to this day. And I, before I come back and doing the commentaries and whatever else I was doing on those nights, um, you still got the tingle in the back of your spine um, going to those games. And, yeah, you're only envious because it's like a drug. You you want to take that drug again and, and get out there and, and be a part of it because uh, there's there's just nothing like it. I've got to say, I was what what you're saying there. Going back to your your old stomping ground, it's incredible the amount of people that do actually remember and thank you for what they do. And I've been here ten yeah. ten years, eleven years now, and I hadn't been back to England for about five or six years. And I went back and I'll gone to Elland Road and you're thinking, you know, you're going, to be un- you're going to be forgotten about. And I couldn't believe, I got a bit of a fright actually took me back to how many people said, oh, thanks for the great days, shame about the injuries, this and that. And I was kind of very surprised knowing that I'd aged dramatically, but yeah. they still recognised and remembered who you were walking along and they're trying to tell their kids about it. So that it's, when you play for a big club like you have and I had it at Leeds United, you're never forgotten if you perform there because you're living every one of them fans' dreams. Right. You know what I mean? It's incredible. It's emotional. It's quite emotional. It's an emotional thing when when you go back and um, it's it's like one of your family. You you really do feel that way about when you go back and um, when you've been away from it so long and when you've gone back to Ellen Rose like that and when I go back to Celtic Park, you just straight away, you fall in love again. It's it's just an amazing feeling, that, that special feeling that you get. You go out there and you could sit in the stand and, and just look at the grass and the hollow turf and you're like, you'd love to be out there again, wouldn't you? Yeah. Tell us about, you mentioned feeling like the Incredible Hulk when the Champions League anthem goes. What about scoring and the noise that reverberates around when, when that happens? Um, was that, is that the moment that gives you the biggest chills from, from your career? Where, where does that stack up? Yeah, I... I definitely say that I think they're moments in time though you you sort of they're like dreams they're not real you know even probably now you you sort of go did that happen you you sort of just get on to the next thing in your life all the time because that's just what you are as a footballer you're always like right I've done that I need to go and do this next and I'm still doing that now to this day so I've never really sat down and really actually appreciated uh, a lot of those moments for what they really were. Um, I think there's no there's no better moment in in your career so when you know you're, you're winning stuff. I think that's always the most special thing and special memories for me in terms of you know the the title that I won at Celtic. Well, that's a day I'll never forget, um, and it's up there with you know my children being born as the best day of my life. You know, and that and that's what you play the game for for those moments, those special moments between you your family, your, your teammates, everything. The, the hard work you put in to, to achieve that um, and from where you've come from to get to that point. So um, for me, that, that day um, is still one that I cherish so much. Bridget, were you going to say something there? 
No, I was going to say, don't forget the wedding day, mate. Otherwise, you'd be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that got me. That got me there for the children being born, didn't it? <laughs> if, if you need to do one more house move and you hadn't mentioned that moment, you're done. <laughs> it cost me enough anyway, mate. Yeah. And hey, what happens on a uh, what? What's a title celebration party like? Because we we do have a few good stories through the archives on this uh, on this gag and pod. Um, as you can see by me sticking myself in an empty Stanford bridge, I never lived those moments. So I always like to find out what it's like for those who <laughs> What well, ours was really weird and exceptional, uh, exceptional because uh, when we won it, it was actually on a Thursday night because Rangers were on an extended um, UEFA Cup run. So we ended up extending the league because they had so many games to make up uh, in such a short space of time. So we ended up extending the league up by seven to ten days and um, having to play the final game of the season uh, on a Thursday night. And it came down to the final game of the season, so made it even more extra special. Um, so we were away to Dundee United that night. And I just remember that whole day just not being able to sleep. We went out and we actually did a training session in the morning and about, I would say, at least 75% of us, were, we were playing like sort of 5v1 keep ball. And honestly, we were, we were terrible. It was like you'd never played the game before. Everyone was, heads were just everywhere else. Um, but to finally get over the line um, and all the, the Celtic fans that were at the game and we still couldn't get out of the stadium for about an hour and a half afterwards. Um, and there was obviously a great party on the bus thereafter. And... Uh, being in Glasgow, there's always somewhere to go on, on, a, on a night. So um, we made... is always open 24-7. <laughs> so we are, there's always something. So straight in the track suits, off at Celtic Park, straight out and uh, let the madness begin. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a hell of a night. I mean, there was a Kiwi boy, Chris Killen, who is a good mate of mine still. And he's crazy, honestly. He's mad as hell. And he still had his track on. But I remember him swapping his full track suit with a bird. Uh, and ended up having like a bird sort of crop top on and her, her tight her tight jeans and she, and she had the, the Celtic tracksuit on and he was like that for the rest of the night. It must have been like 11pm and we ended up going to the casino at about 3 three a.m. in the morning and he still had this gear on. Man. <laughs> it, was, it was a sight, I tell you. But um, the, those days are, are brilliant and then you just kick on the next day at, at 12 p.m. 12 everyone had to be back at the back at the bar in, in the West End and it just went mad again for probably two, three days. Brilliant. Brilliant stuff. Hey, um, I'm conscious of time and, 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 you know, what we had a really good discussion before about Australian football. So we might have to get you on again a bit later, Scotty, to talk about, regale some more stories from, from yesteryear. But you did touch on it earlier about coming home and the motivation of coming home because of what people saw during your Socceroos days. Do you feel like, just touch on the highs that you had while you were playing for Celtic when you're at your peak. Was that a really weird contradiction with the experience you had with the national team almost at the same time of your career when it, when it should have been both here and, and perhaps that you misunderstood in a way from the public back home? Yeah, possibly. I think everyone sort of got the wrong end of the stick of me as actually a footballer. Um, I think everyone had this perception of me being just a goal poacher throughout my career. Certainly not the case. I think at Celtic, I changed my game quite a bit because 
I was intelligent enough to do so because I had so many good players around me that I didn't have to go and do the stuff I was doing previous. I'd give it to the likes of a, a Nakamura or a McGeady, right, get in the box because that's where I need to be. I need to score goals. I'm at a big club. I need to get on the end of things, you know, let other people do the other side of, you know, more, you could say, the dirty side of the game for you um, to get in the box. And I think I was deemed as sort of this guy who was just always going to be a, a goal poacher and couldn't really do much else within the national team. And I've said this a few times. I was very lucky to be part of the generation of players I played with in the national team, but I was also very unlucky. Um, to have been part of that generation um, because of the, the top quality of players that I was um, seeing myself come up against as well. The likes of you know, Harry Kules, you know, Timmy Cahills. Um, it, was, it was difficult to, to break in full-time all the time. And I think I was always that type of player that needed, uh, probably still to this day, a manager that believed in me was going to give me time to, to go and perform. Um, and I suppose under... Um, Pim Verbeek and uh, Holger Osiek for a period that felt like that was going to happen um, but for it to all of a sudden halt again and I, I never really was one to to be able to understand or be happy with that where you could play one and not play for the next three play one and not play I had to be an integral part or an important or feel that way and I just never felt that way within the whole Australian sort of national team setup. so I ended up coming to a point where I just didn't really enjoy it or want, want to be around it anymore and uh, possibly I've said this already in, in terms of being on another uh, interview was that I felt at one point or another I'd made the wrong choice to play for the wrong country because of terms of that um, and being very British in my mentality now because I've lived there that long um, and being in Scotland for a long time and the style of play that they played and because they were seeing me every week I would have been appreciated a lot better so for those reasons, I felt maybe I made the wrong choice. But that, that was that period in time within my career that you're at the heights of it and you're thinking about yourself. But looking back now, I would never have really changed the reasons why I chose my country because it's my country and this is where I developed um, and always felt a loyalty to, to the country I was born in, but also the country that developed. You know, and I was very, always very proud to have played my whole way through uh, in the youth setups, and then to play for the national team. And um, I was very fortunate to do and to play for my country. And not a lot of people get to have that opportunity. So from those points of view, yeah, you always wish it could have went better. But um, I still enjoyed moments of it. But unfortunately, it could have been a lot better than what it was. If given that a little bit more of an opportunity and uh, a manager who felt that I was going to be more important to, to the cause. But with so many players of that generation that we had, like I said, very difficult to be that player. Silly question. This might sound like a silly question, Bridgie, but as strikers, the both of you, what does, if, if there were one early goal, one goal that ricochets off your noggin when you don't know that it's even, you're lo even looking at you, how much does that change the whole dynamic around you with your teammates, with the pressure from the coach, with the media, with the fans? Can you take us into that world where it's not quite going your way? Um, several occasions, Dave. <laughs> um, there was the period, I mean, the, the first game for Leeds United against Derby, um, you know, I just signed that season and it was a nil-nil drib-drab game. I had an absolute shocker and I can hear the fans 
murmuring, five and a half million for this, is that what we get? You know, he didn't even have a chance on goal. That really affected me in the first game. It was such a relief to go away from Elland Road. Pressure was off against Southampton and score possibly one of the best goals that I've ever scored just to break the ice. And, you know, after that, I went on to get a hat-trick. That was a massive relief for... I felt accepted by the players. I felt accepted by the fans. And O'Leary put his arm around us and just went, that's, that's why I bought you, my boy. Mm. That was a great moment. But then I've been on goal droughts where I'd gone, like you say, nine or ten games. And you what, what you looking back now, you, you try too much. What Scott said before, when he got the ball, he got the ball, he gave it out wide, he got himself in the box and he wanted to get in the end of things. When you go on a bit of a drought when you've had two or three games and then you go four games, you try to do things that you would not normally try or would come easy to you. You try to be the guy that is delivering the cross for yourself to get on the end of it or you're doing stupid things and you're not actually in the areas. I used to drop too deep to come and retrieve the ball and drop into midfield. And, and then I'm thinking, hang on, O'Leary said, we bought you to score goals. I don't want to see you dropping that deep to get on the ball. You might not touch a ball for 50 minutes of the game, but you've got to play and hold a high line for our team and let the midfielders, you're condensing the space. And, you know, it was instructions like that that kind of made you go, hang on a minute, yeah, I'm actually, I'm not in the right positions because I'm trying too hard in other areas. Um, so I need a little bit of advice on that. And like you say, when you get that one goal after the, and it was nine games I'd gone without a goal, mate, the relief is absolutely massive. And you, whether it goes in off your nose or your backside, whatever, you're not bothered. They're the goals that we're paid to score, not the world, not the worldies. Did yeah. you, I think you, you touched on there, Bridgie, in terms of, I think the most important thing for me through those periods, it actually isn't about yourself at that point, is it? It's actually, you feel, you want the acceptance of your teammates. You want them to feel that they rate you. And when you're not scoring goals, you feel as if you're letting them down and also that they don't quite rate you as the player that you actually believe you are. And I think that I found that very, very difficult uh, within the whole Australian setup. And I needed that goal to actually gain their acceptance more than, you know, fans or anyone like that. Or it was more just because then I'm on your level. And I always felt that I couldn't get to that level because I hadn't done that. And that was a frustrating thing for me. Well, I didn't feel like I belonged at Leeds United, Scotty, when I'd signed from Sunderland. I was playing, as a youngster coming through, I was playing second fiddle to Nell Quinn and Kevin Phillips. Peter Reid had a great squad. There was myself and Danny Diccio were the two guys. So it was like, a bit like the little and large. If Quinn was injured, Danny would play. If Kevin was injured, I would play all suspensions. And like you say, that, that was, I knew my role. I didn't mind that, you know, and as a, as a time went on, I thought, you know, maybe a break came. Leeds signed us and I thought, hang on a minute, Jimmy Floyd, Hasselbank, Harry Kules, your David Batty's, you know, what, what are they wanting me? And that whole pre-season, I had to up my game to be on their level of fitness and, yeah. and, and work at it. But again, that acceptance, I still didn't feel like I belonged there. And that's why that hat-trick was a massive moment. It was David Batty that grabbed us around the neck and actually said, Welcome to the club, young man. So obviously he didn't believe I belonged there neither. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's massive, mate. There's been a lot of talk, Scott, at the moment. I think it's because everyone's got a lot of time on their hands and nostalgia and retrospectives and, and looking back at the past. And the Socceroos has come up a lot in discussion at the moment. You know, that, that fantastic era, 2005, 2006. But a lot of the legends are, and, and, and through, you know, fortunately dropped the sport as well, again, the chance to have, have their say. Um, 
But I wonder, just to touch on what you just said, I found that fascinating that you found that the, the goal, wanting to just show that, that, that you were at that level. Um, how, can you talk us through the process of, of entering a national team setup and trying to come from all parts of the world and prove that, yep, I'm, 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 I'm your man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be part of this and I can take you to, the, to another level. It's, it's no different from club football. You, you do have to go in there and uh, get accepted. Um, because you have players that have been there for a longer period of time. So, and it's not always, which I disagree with, it's not always about actually your performances. It's uh, actually if they deem you acceptable for even off the pitch. You know, uh, the guy's a good lad, so we like him, you can come in. I didn't like that type of stuff that went on in national teams, you know, and, and it can get a little bit, right, group here, group there, group everywhere. You know, it's, it can get, can get like that. And, and I found that throughout my period in the national team. And I never, let's get this right, I never doubted my own ability. I was just frustrated by others doubting my ability. That was, that was my biggest frustration. And that's why I hated going um, at times because I felt that I was disregarded and disrespected, whether it be from media, uh, fans, or from players, um, or all of them above. I was just like, what am I doing here? Um, and then that's where the real distaste or, you know, unenjoyment of the whole thing um, came quite prevalent to me. And, and in terms of not getting to a World Cup, like you said, when I was in probably the peak of my powers, um, for reasons I still don't understand to this day, that was, that was extremely hurtful um, looking back because it's every, every player's dream to go and play in a World Cup. And not to have the opportunity. I think it was all down to because I would have asked questions of the manager um, why I'm not playing instead of just being okay or happy to pick up my, whatever it was, a quarter of a million dollars to go and play, sit on a bench at a World Cup for, for six weeks. I'm sorry, that wasn't why I was there. I was going because I wanted to play. I couldn't care less about money. I wanted to be part of the World Cup and I wanted to play. You know, So you're going to get questions if I'm not. You know, but obviously they didn't want someone who was going to be like that. So I was left behind. Oh, yeah, having a big what if it's Do you think looking back, because I've, I've read a, a fair bit of stuff that, you know, you, you wore your heart and your sleeve through your career with different managers as it went through. Um, but that's you, isn't it? In a nutshell, that's how you got onto the field and that's how you sort of paved your way, wasn't it? Well, I think you've just heard it. <laughs> I think you've just heard it and seen it for yourself. But yeah, look, that was me and that, that's the way I've always been. Um, I've calmed down and matured as everyone does with, that, with age, you know, and uh, the rights and the wrongs throughout your career. And I think it's important that you can look back and actually learn from, you know, the high down, more the lows and in terms of... Um, the things you did wrong throughout your career and be able to have the humility um, to be able to learn from that and push forward and move forward for whatever's going to come next in your career. And I think the biggest thing for me in terms of uh, as I've got older, especially in the last couple of years, when I retired and come back, it's the biggest learning curve I had to be uh, more open and give more of myself to others. I think um, throughout that I've uh, had a lot more endearment and, a lot more of a relationship with the players I'm now playing with and the feedback and everything else I'm getting from that and the reward, whether it be inside or seeing players, you know, perform or actually enjoy being around me and actually learning from me. 
I think that's been hugely rewarding for me in the last sort of 18 months and uh, something that I'm proud that I've moved on to and hopefully can move forward into, you know, the, the coaching side of the game or whatever else I'm going to do in my life. Yeah, the both of you, pretty, as you started to realise that you were going to maybe be a coach or a pundit or look at whatever was with you for, for life beyond football, did that help you? Did, did that change a bit like Scott said, the way you just looked at the training pitch, the way you looked at the way people looked at you, the way you looked at how you were going to handle yourself in your last few years of your career? Yeah, I mean, you, you go back, you know, like Scotty says, you mature and you, you go back and have a look. I love being a practical joker when I was a player. I love the banter. And, you know, you just, I've had coaches and managers that have had a yin and yang where one's been serious, one's been a, a funny character. You know, one that's got an open door, the other one's got it closed. So I think that, that helps when you've got a relationship with some of the players, but it's got to be completely different to what you were as a player. And, um, you, you know, I look back and, and see, see things that's, that I've, I've done and not proud of over the years. And you, you try to take the good and the bad out of what you've learned. You put it all together. And, you know, it's all I've known, Dave, since I was four years of age, kicking a ball football. So if I'm not doing anything in relation with football, whether it's talking about it, passing on knowledge to kids, or whether it's being a coach or a manager, then, you know, I, I don't see me being a happy person because it's all I know. I've got me love of football. I've got the love of my family. And that is me in a nutshell. I've got me hobbies. If, I, if you take the football away from my life, mate, forget it. I'm, I'm not the person that I am. I won't be that bubbly person. I'll be, yeah, it'll be a nightmare. Uh, exactly. Yeah, we all grow older and wiser, uglier, whatever. And we see, we see where it takes us. For yourself. <laughs> hey, I've got better looking. What are you talking about? <laughs> I had, a sh- I had a shade between last week and this week, but there's a reason why I turned the camera on. Last week, you couldn't even see me through the through the shadow. So there's a little bit of a difference there now after four weeks. Well, there is, Dave. But a little bit of um, a little bit of recommendation, mate. You know, when you do the bottom bit down here and you do your beard and you do your moustache, just try the eyebrows, pal, because we can't, you know you can't see past them things. <laughs> I gotta give us something. I gotta give us something to have a go at me at, Bridget. I've got to give you something for comedy value to get us through it. Buddy, have you ever seen anybody in the world with a one brow like that, mate? There you go. <laughs> I've seen a lot of eyebrows in my time. <laughs> oh, oh brilliant. Oh, no, it's all, it's all good. We've got to if we if we give it to Bridget, we gotta get it. There's there's no doubt about that. Um, gents, I look. He loves the back. He does, he does. And it's, you know what, the dressing room doesn't end in the career. It's in the pundit studio. It's, it's, it's in the office. It's everywhere. And it keeps, it keeps us going. Boys, I could talk football for hours. I think we'll have, we'll, and I think, unfortunately, probably have a few months to go and, and do it. Um, but thank, <laughs> thanks very much for your time, Scott. As I said to you when we are sort of preparing for it, we could go anywhere. And I think we did. Uh, all, all sorts of topics yeah. that are left to still talk about, which is a good excuse to, to do it all again. Um, just before we go, I want to ask one more for you, Bridgie. It's got nothing to do with anything we've talked about, but I just want to ask you with your Newcastle United hat on, I want to ask you something, what you thought when you woke up yesterday and you saw that there were the takeover yeah. 300 million pound for the club that you used to play for, which has been so mired in mediocrity for so long. Do you look at that and go, yes, or do you look at that and go, how the hell is that happening now in this climate? We've talked about this before when there's been takeover bids of coming for Newcastle United. And the first person to come out and say that there was a takeover bid, it happens on the first day of the transfer window in January, and it is Mike Ashley. 
And what he does, he smoke screens all the fans to think, oh, we're getting a takeover bid. It's going to be brilliant. And what happens? Newcastle go through the whole transfer window and they don't sign anybody. And then all of a sudden the deal falls through. So Mike's got this big smoke screen. And sometimes it happens on April the 1st because it's an April Fool's joke. Now, if there's any time to buy a football club, and Amanda Stevely or Stevely is the woman that has been orchestrating this and putting it together for about a year to two years. Um, I know Rafa Benitez was closely linked to her. She's been working behind the scenes. Now, in the current climate that we are in, how can somebody buy a football club? Well, if you're a sheikh and you've got as much money as they have and you're one of the royal family, then it's potentially going to happen. And with the current climate and Mike Ashley wanting to get out and do that and go on to other ventures because the fans have not embraced them, I think this is a no-brainer and it will be done and dusted, I think, within the next month easily. It's the big talk of the town. I've had people, you know, normally the lads are on the WhatsApp groups, ex-players and um, fans from the area. Have, we have a laugh and a joke about it and say, oh, here we go again. Exactly what I've just explained. But this, this is fully, fully blown. And um, I think it's going to be done and dusted very, very soon. And I think it's really good for Newcastle, the region, the fans, because... Mike has done a wonderful job in, in giving that club a little bit of a, a kickstart, but then it has just festered. And the things that he's done with Alan Shearer, you know, he was, he was a club legend there. He had a Shearer's bar that was taken off him. Now it's called number nine. He's got rid of a lot of the ambassadors that were there. They haven't embraced the culture of the Londoners. So this is a whole new market. And I think that it's going to be great for some of the ex-players getting back involved with that football club and getting getting a lot more of the locals playing um, the junior level with the facilities they're going to be able to bring to the, to the club. Okay, so we'll see what time will tell with that over the next coming period. Overseas takeovers, I mean, we've seen a few of them in the Premier League. There's, there's politics involved too. That's another whole conversation. But ultimately, I think it's what most Newcastle fans hope and dream of seeing. And some cheer in this very interesting period. Gents, thanks so much for your time today. Scott, great to have you on board. Won't be the last uh, if, you, if you're up for it. Yeah, absolutely. Enjoyed it. Good stuff. Thanks very much, mate. Now we've got to find something else to do for the rest of the day. Bridgie, you've yeah. got to keep studying, mate. You've got to get back on the scoreboard tonight. Oh, I know, mate. Swartzy's got three medals. I've got two. John Aloisi's got two. And um, there's been a bit of shenanigans going on because Mark Swartz is delaying his answers. And I'm just trying to work out how and why. Whether his Google Assist is helping, I don't know. I don't want to go out there and judge, but I'm going to study tonight because... Um, it's, you know what it is? I, I get so excited for nine o'clock at night time, Dave. It's the highlight of my day at the minute, apart from the podcast, obviously. But um, it's been great. Looking forward to it. Scotty, good luck with everything, mate. Stay Thanks, safe. Talk keep, soon, mate. keep stimulating the mental brains and everybody that's listening or watching. Um, good luck. Stay safe. And thanks once again for listening. And Bridget, don't forget, you're on the laptop. You can phone a friend. See if you can get away with it. I'm there. I'm standing by every night, okay? I'm waiting for, I'm waiting for the call. <laughs> I've had a few people offer a little bit of help me, so it's still not working. Yeah. Uh, well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. A bit different to the last couple, but hang on every word as ever with our two uh, football greats on the line as ever. Now, normally, as I always say, I say until the next second pod, enjoy your football. We can't do that this time. So as ever, stay safe, look after yourself, and we'll be here again next week. Cheers.